This is Movies for the Blind, episode 171, Dirt, the Movie, part two of two. I'm doing the best I can. Hello and welcome to Movies for the Blind, where you can enjoy films without looking at a screen. I'm Valerie Hunter. We're back with Dirt, the Movie. And so far, we've met a lot of interesting people doing some very interesting things with dirt. There's Bill Logan, whose book inspired the movie, Vandana Shiva, a physicist with her own farm in India, Wangari Mathai, a Nobel Peace Prize winner getting trees planted throughout Africa, Gary Vaynerchuk, who, by the way, is a rock star to many of us podcasters, a wine expert not afraid to get some vineyard dirt on his tongue, Peter Gerges, a Harvard microbiologist who really knows what's inside dirt and what it can do. We even have a cartoon version of what's inside dirt, a character that I'm calling a dirt bit, but is officially named Digby. All of them, and many more folks, including narrator Jamie Lee Curtis, are talking about the importance of dirt to us and the earth. We left off with the subject of how methods of mining and monoculture farming are messing up dirt for us, leading to some dire consequences. Good news is coming, though, but there are other things to consider first, and we'll start with a mycologist, that's someone who studies fungi, in the conclusion of Dirt the Movie. Paul Stemmets. Because of our activities, we should be very concerned about our future. If there was a united organization of organisms... An animation shows a meeting of dirt bits. And each organism had the right to vote. Would we be voted off the planet? Many dirt bits say yes. One says no, but gets angry, looks from the others, and changes the vote. Given that our bodies reject viruses, the analogy that the Earth could reject the human species as a virus is very apropos and has good biological precedent. Black and white photos show men drilling for oil, toxic vats stirred, barefoot children transporting waste. Over the course of 30 years, taking and editing photographs, Sebastian and Lelia Salgado have documented environmental and human devastation around the world. When you do human photography, when you do this kind of uh, uh, photography, you must uh, uh, live with people. Photos include malnourished children. Living with people, you have time to see what happens around you and you started to see that that there is a very strong correlation between human degradation and environmental degradation. A skinny man looks back before joining dozens of people climbing wooden ladders out of a pit which contains hundreds. Leila. This picture. Of men praying on cracked ground. You know, when we see all dry and the people, they are asking for rain. And uh, why? It's because we have no more trees, no more forest, and the people, they suffer. Sebastian shows a photo of canoes and sand. This is Mali. No more water inside of this lake. And here I have a picture of the people walking inside what was the lake. And that become a desert. Wangari Matai. People who live on degraded lands become very poor. Often they will abandon the land and they will go to cities looking for jobs that are not available. And they will end up in slums. For the first time in human history, more people live in cities than in the countryside. In the developing world, nearly 80% of city dwellers now live in slums. 
They are displaced people who've been separated from the dirt that sustained them. A young woman with a baby on her back forages in a garbage dump. As she picks through a pile, a truck empties more garbage, which she must turn away from. In a news report, it's lunchtime in one of Haiti's most desperate slums. But because of rising food prices, this mother and her toddler now rely on a traditional Haitian remedy for hunger pangs, cookies made of dried yellow dirt. One picks up a stack of the cookies, and a young woman eats from one of them. Elsewhere, a mob crosses a bridge, stopped by armed soldiers, and others raid a supply truck. Across the planet, hungry people are rioting over food. A fire engine rushes to tires set ablaze. Miguel Altieri. The food riots are a direct consequence of the industrial model of agriculture, the failure of the industrial agricultural model. Deadly conflicts and outright wars are breaking out over our dwindling supply of fertile soil. Bodies line a roadside. Crowds run through streets. And a man fires a rifle. Matai. The conflict in Sudan is nearly a conflict over dirt. A machine gun is fired from the back of a truck. Altieri. For the first time, you have corporations that are going to be dictating the future of the soil and the future of the landscapes. Floods, drought, climate change, even war. A body is dumped. Are all directly related to the way we are treating dirt. Bandana Shiva. We as a human species are facing. First, the problem of ecological non-sustainability that we have created toxic load, we've created climate change. Each of these problems individually could push the human species to extinction. Collectively, we can be absolutely sure we don't have too much time. Here's this 120-year window. West Jackson. In which we find ourselves. Founder of the Land Institute. And it's probably the most important window in the history of Homo sapien. I think it's this period that's the most important since our walk out of Africa because we've now got to come to the end of the extractive economy and figure out how to live within our means. A mountain is blasted apart and collapses in dry, light brown rubble. Dust engulfs the camera. Mathai. We are constantly being bombarded by problems that we face and sometimes we can get completely overwhelmed. The story of the hummingbird is about this huge forest being consumed by a fire. In an animation, birds fly from it. Animals in the forest come out and they are transfixed as they watch the forest burning and they feel very overwhelmed, very powerless, except this little hummingbird. It says, I'm going to do something about the fire. So it flies to the nearest stream, takes a drop of water, and puts it on the fire, and goes up and down, up and down, up and down, as fast as it can. In the meantime, all the other animals, much bigger animals, like the elephant with a big trunk, could bring much more water. They are standing there helpless, and they are saying to the hummingbird, what do you think you can do? You're too little. This fire is too big. Your wings are too little. And you are big, so small. You can only bring a small drop of water at a time. But as they continue to discourage it, it turns to them without wasting any time and tells them, I am doing the best I can. 
And that to me is what all of us should do. We should always feel like a hummingbird. The Salgados examine photos. After years of bearing witness to environmental degradation, the Salgados knew they could no longer simply remain observers. They compare a ravaged landscape to a green one. They had to do something. Layla. Why not plant a forest? The forest we had before here. She visits the green site. The first plantation we did, we did it here and there. Sebastian. When you come to Instituto Terra, you see one million trees together and now big trees that you can embrace. In a photo, their arms surround a large tree. Nearby, a butterfly pollinates one of many flowers, as does a hummingbird. You see the birds. We have so many birds now. In all this land around this planet, if we started to replant, in 10 years we'll be no more dead land. When Pierre Rabhi looks at a desert, he sees an oasis. I went to Burkina Faso for the first time in 1981. My specialty was to keep desertification from killing dirt. So I proposed they practice agroecology. His lifelong work in Africa has been to promote agroecology, an organic, biodiverse agriculture that combines scientific knowledge with traditional wisdom. In archived video, he smells revived dirt. Today, there are over 100,000 farmers in Burkina Faso who are using the methods we suggested in 1981. We have estimated that Ethiopia alone, if properly cultivated, could feed the entire African continent. At the Land Institute, Jackson. It wasn't long ago that Native Americans were living off this arrangement. They ate the prairie turnip, of course, ate things out of the streams, and they also ate the bison and the prairie elk. Here was what we might call an original relationship with the universe. To build an agriculture as sustainable as the ecosystems we have destroyed is necessary and possible. What we're trying to do is build agriculture based on the way the ecosystems were 10,000 years ago. This prairie would be our library. Different grasses wave on the prairie. Jackson helps open a long soil sample. What the soil scientists here are trying to do is to understand those dynamics below the surface that sustain what we harvest above. Jerry Glover holds up a long set of roots. Just to show you in one plant some of the diversity of root systems that we have. With a perennial, it allows this plant to come back each year from its root system. It doesn't have to be started each year from seed, and it doesn't have to grow its entire root system each year like an annual plant would have to do. He picks up more roots. Our annual crops, such as this native uh, annual wheat, its root systems are much more shallow, so if it rains, carrying with it nitrogen, and that nitrogen ends up 10 feet down, this wheat plant can't get it. So we have to put on more nitrogen. That native perennial at 10 feet is able to grab it. This ain't doing it, this is. Jackson. This root diversity below ground, green diversity above the surface, is going to be far more resilient to a change in the climate 
than the annual monocultures. Clever. A lot of what we're talking about is going on below ground. So let's just go below ground. He jumps into a pit. So here we have a nice soil pit. It's roughly uh, six feet from the bottom of the pit up to the soil surface. Now, not all soils are this deep, obviously, but the thinner the soil, you know, let's say we have bedrock right here. The thinner the soil, the more important it is to have the perennial roots to protect that soil. If you only have this much soil in which to grow your food and you lose several inches of it a year, it's not too many years and you're growing nothing. Our goal is uh, to have soil erosion go to zero. That's the first important step, as I see it, to begin the reconciliation uh, for us as a species out of context. At Navdanya Farm in India, Shiva, when I started Navdanya with concern for the seed and its renewability and its fertility, I started it as my personal commitment. Not knowing how many would join, no matter how long I would be able to continue this commitment in practicing farming that is first a service to the soil. What Vandana Shiva and her colleagues do here Capra. to collect and preserve the seed varieties, to share them with the surrounding farmers. This is a sorghum. So that the entire agricultural region uh, regains biodiversity and is revitalized. The only quality food that we can ever produce is food that is a byproduct of our relationship with the soil. We will use vetch, we will use clover. Bob Kennard. And I'm going to broadcast them by hand. And while I'm broadcasting them by hand, I'm going to give each seed all of the energy of my soul and connect with all of my plants and my soil. It's so very important that we recognize that we're not separate from all of it. Holding a small plant, Altieri. What's happening here on the bottom. dictates what happens up here. On top. And what happens up here also dictates what happens down here. They're, they're totally connected. The below ground and above ground are totally connected ecologically. A new generation is finding ways to change their relationship to dirt. Hardy Roots Farm. One group of young city dwellers moved from Brooklyn to upstate New York to put down new roots. Benjamin Shute. We grow $20,000 per acre per year vegetables. Um, feeding thousands of people on what was a hayfield. And there's tons more of these fields all over this region. Miriam Latzer. I've been working together for two years now. This is such small time, small scale, compared to most of the farms. But um, we're preserving the soil by doing it organically. Shoot and Danny Perkich harvest fennel by hand. It's pretty amazing to have your hands in this matter right here, and it's all alive. Add a little water, add a little sunlight, and attend it a little bit, and hey. At this point, we have about 500 families who we supply vegetables to on a weekly basis. Perkins drives into Brooklyn, New York. Miriam and Benjamin have figured a way to make it work for themselves and for us. We have health care, which is pretty amazing. I mean, I have health care. I haven't had health care in a while. <laughs> First drop-off is in Bay Ridge, and then we make it over to Greenwood Heights. Then we make it over to the Red Shed Community Garden. Giving food, the food you grew to people, is pretty awesome. Yeah? He delivers two boxes to a community garden. Community-supported agriculture, or CSAs, provide fresh produce to subscribers. Shoot. 
in exchange for us providing them produce every week, they pay us a yearly subscription fee. And that money allows us to grow the food, buy seeds, buy equipment, take care of ourselves. A customer gathers kale from one of the boxes. Another customer. I think there are a lot of people trying to make efforts doing things like this, trying to give us a natural niche in a place that's pretty much concrete, you know? So, you know, you do what you can. She delivers to a minivan. These are going to be going to Brownsville, Brooklyn. It's a lot of less fortunate families. It would be really a good thing in the future if some of the families could actually come and come here and see the whole dirt process, because a lot of times in the, you know, in the inner city, there's actually no dirt. You see everything is pretty much concrete. Only the odd tuft of green pops out from the surrounding streets, dominated by brick with messy graffiti. But trees grow along a mural in another part of town. You don't have to move out of your neighborhood to live in a better one, but you sure do have to fight as hell if you want to reconnect Majora Carter. your life into a more sustainable South Bronx natural state that actually includes poor people and poor people of color. So we work to create opportunities, do tree planting, to work on, you know, creating parks. She walks through one of those parks in light rain. The presence of trees in open space actually has a positive impact on people's mental well-being. On top of a building. We're in the South Bronx on top of the house that I live in. And what we're standing on right now is the green roof that we planted about seven months ago. She bends down to pull at a sprouting plant. A green roof is a sustainable building technique, and it's really simply soil and living plants. But it has some really amazing properties, such as stormwater management. It actually retains about between 70 to 95% of the water that falls on it. Um, energy conservation, it provides you know, an insulating layer to the floor underneath it. Uh, they, protect a roof from sun damage, so they actually last up to five times longer than a traditional roof, and it actually cleans the air as well. Isn't that beautiful? On the ground in a backyard, she points up. Up here, that's the downspout that goes from our greener, so all the excess water goes down, and then it's carried over into this rain barrel, and that's connected to a drip irrigation hose, which nicely waters our tomato plants and our lovely uh, pear tree and uh, the rose bushes and there's cauliflower. So this is our compost bin. So remember all the weeds that I pulled up off our green roof? They're gonna go right in here. And we found some earth with a lot of clay content in it and it's really been nice to have it amended with the compost. She holds out rich dark soil. Isn't that beautiful? What we want to do is green as many areas of our, of our urban areas as possible to kind of mimic what nature has already stated works. So many of us Mathai. feel overwhelmed by the problems we encounter. And sometimes you feel like, so what am I, what can I do? Me, little me. It was 1970. Andy Lipkis. I was 15, and the Forest Service told us that smog was killing the forest. They said they found that there were some trees that were smog tolerant but no one was planting them. And it was up to us kids if we were gonna save the forest. So what we did was take a piece of our camp that had been turned into a parking lot. We peeled back a four inch layer of tar and oil, let the dirt come back to life. On TV with Johnny Carson. Out of your concern for what was happening with the trees and kind of grew and then the volunteers joined and uh, and other people who thought it was a good idea have joined in. Today, tens of thousands of young people come here to learn about how nature worked in cycles. And they learn how those cycles were broken, causing damage to the ecosystem. They learn their profound power and their role 
as the healers of that cycle. How long would that take to, to, to grow? Carson sets out a seedling. To a fairly good size, four or five feet. Two, three years. And this is going to be a redwood? It's already a redwood. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> Carson looks at the camera sheepishly. Today. If you look across any schoolyard in Los Angeles, mostly it looks like a parking lot. That very same process of attacking a parking lot is what's happening on schoolyards and neighborhoods all over. After a line is spray painted, a machine cuts into asphalt. The prominent reporter said, well, if you remove the asphalt, where are they going to play? I went, whoa. That really reveals how far we've come from nature. The children of Bundelkhand, India, toss dirt gleefully. In Los Angeles, the cutting continues into the asphalt playground. Soon after, a jackhammer breaks it into smaller pieces, and another machine lifts a hard layer. In an animation, a dirt bit blinks in the new light. When the machine moves out a plate of asphalt, the dirt bit celebrates. It's really amazing what started happening as students started to remove the asphalt and green their campuses. Alice Waters, chef owner Chez Panisse, founder of the Edible Schoolyard. This place used to be all concrete, just like down there at basketball courts. We planted an edible landscape. A girl pulls a carrot from the ground. Let me see. Oh, that's really good. It's the experience in nature is so comforting to these kids who have never had their hands in the ground before. They just need to be here. They want to be in the garden. What that we should all get our hands in the dirt and pick the vegetables ourselves and bring them into the kitchen and make them into these beautiful soup. <laughs> Inside, a boy is served a bowl of hearty soup. Thank you. Our whole lunch is actually made out of dirt. Thank you, Thanks so much for the salad. Salad sandwich. Salad sandwich. Thanks, Dirt. You made my lunch. Thanks, Dirt. You made my lunch. All our prayers, Shiva, are ancient prayers from the beginning of the agricultural season. Begin with, I know I have to take something from you, Mother Earth, to feed myself, to feed my family, but I promise I will return as much as I can. At the schoolyard. Is compost. We just cultivated the bed, so we put compost all over it, then layered it with some newer soil. Garbage for compost is emptied. There's no such thing as waste until it's wasted. Compost is the black gold that keeps dirt healthy. I really think of this compost pile as a giant casserole, or say a lasagna, because all these things are going to start cooking. That's the way compost works. You basically need two things. You need stems of plants or chopped up leaves, something like that. And then you have the moist green ingredients. And that's things like weeds or old cucumbers or anything like that that's leafy matter. And the dry brown is the fuel. The moist green is the fire. When you add nitrogen and carbon together, you get this wonderful combustion aided by our little friends, the bacteria and the fungi that are in here making it all work. And it turns into something resembling the best soil you ever saw. In a Maine harbor with Bill Logan, Will Brinton. We got a call from the state of Maine that they had a fish waste crisis. They were dumping fish waste out at sea and EPA was beginning to crack down. And I said, let's bring all the waste on the shore and compost it. 
But guess what we had to deal with? We had this kind of material here. He opens a container. Take a, take a whiff of that. Logan does. Holy! And recoils, covering his face. <laughs> it's, um, that's pretty strong, isn't it? That's pretty strong. Yeah. As soon as we started composting, everybody said, oh, that's what the Indians used to do. But we're combining it with, with a carbon source. And the traditional carbon source for making compost is softwood sawdust. But this is really step step one. Wes Kinney smells a handful. Not bad. Yeah, this is about one turn too early. You can pick up a slight ammonia smell with this, and that kind of gives me away that I'm rushing this just a little bit. The next step up, we've turned it four more times. At this point, you can smell it. No ammonia smell at all. That's a good sign. That's a real good sign that we're right on track. It has a real earthy smell. It smells just like dirt right out of your garden at this point. And this is their final product. Look. Brinton shows some rich, dark compost to Logan. All it took was about eight months of composting. It's beautiful. At Four Seasons Farm in Harborside, Maine, organic farmer Elliot Coleman drives a front loader to dump compost onto a field. There was a neighbor no more than a couple of miles away who had a business uh, shucking clams. And if we turned up at his operation at 3.30 when he quit work every afternoon, he would dump all these barrels of clamshells into the back of my trailer. We would bring them back and spread them on the field and rototill them in. And it was a very interesting thing because the local extension agent came by one day when I was doing that. And he looked at this and he said, well, that's foolish, Elliot. They won't break down for 100 years. And I said, great. You mean I have a steady supply of calcium for the next 100 years? And it was just these two ways of looking at it. He yeah. wanted it today. I was thinking of long-term fertility and something that would be there for the future. At Harvard, Peter Gerges. People are realizing that soils and sediments actually contain a fair amount of energy. And the energy that you find is tied up as organic matter. So soils and sediments, wastewater, right? The things that that you may throw out of your kitchen as food scraps or, or the tremendous amount of organic rich waste that comes out of an industry, you know, we would just dump that somewhere and, and ignore it. And now we're beginning to realize that we can harness energy from it. In a lab. To that end, we've been looking a lot at these microbial fuel cells, which are devices that harness energy from the naturally occurring cycles that take place in soils. The basic premise is that you have microbes that live in soils and sediments, and, and they eat the organic matter in the soil, and to generate energy from that, they have to move electrons off of that through their biochemical pathways and stick those electrons onto something. By using a microbial fuel cell that you would put into the soil, you can do things like turn this landscape light on. The connected light turns on. So what you see here is our landscape light being powered by energy that we harness from microbes which you could have in your home, in your backyard, or we could use these to illuminate parks and public spaces. And our hope is that we'll be able to find ways to use microbial fuel cells to power uh, maybe outdoor landscape lighting or even bring lights to rural or remote regions of the U.S. And of course, to help those people in the developing world improve their quality of life. At a prison. Rikers Island in New York City, one of the largest prison complexes in the world offers inmates the opportunity to work in the greenhouse program. James Dryler. When we talk about dirt, we're not just talking about dirt, we're talking about uh, the spiritual as well as the physical attributes of one's life. Inmates in red-striped coveralls step off a bus. And I think that's what people relate dirt to after they come from jail into the gardens. It's no longer dirt. It's a metaphor for a healthy life. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. I have a three-year-old. 
actually had my 20th birthday here. A fight brought me here. You know, reality smacked me in my face, you know, being here. And at the same time, I, I've found something I like to do. I notice when people come through the gate, you know, they're hunched over, they're feeling the impact of what it's like being locked up. All of a sudden, as they start moving through the garden, I kind of almost see their chest cavity expand and their shoulders go out. Yeah, when I come out the door, I say, wow, it's so beautiful. And the first thing I see is my friends, Donald and the guinea fowl, they're my favorite birds, and I love them to death. They're so serene and beautiful. It's something that one, a person would have to feel for themselves. That's behind those closed doors. In the period of time it takes to mix soil, to dig into soil, I see this transformation. And it really comes with that first exploration into the world of dirt. Students plant a tree, Lipkiss. It's really amazing what started happening as students started to remove the asphalt and green their campuses. Principals have reported that kids are playing more cooperative games and less aggressive. That's really cool. A little girl working in some dirt pokes a dirt bit, making it giggle. Digging, it's magical. Everybody loves digging. At Rikers. You have to get on your knees, and you have to dig through that dirt. Living things work together to make life a better place. It's a good thing. God made dirt, and dirt don't hurt. The dirt program's great. It's just another way to get back to society. I'm actually helping people, feeding the homeless. I would love to work with flowers and dirt. Now that I conquered my fear, I'm not scared what comes from it. <laughs> At some point, they fall in love with the whole thing. And it can either be an activity or it can be a plant they connect to, but they connect. I like the cactus. I really do. Things might want to come and eat off it, but it can't because it's tough on the outside and it protects itself. It's sweet inside. That's, I would say this is me. <laughs> Carter. When you've got a prison industrial complex and one that, you know, supports our GDP as much as this one does, then if you build a jail, it will be filled. What we wanted to do was show that there is another way. If you've got a bunch of guys and gals who are planting trees, who are installing green roofs, those are actually paying the city back in terms of, of, of stormwater management costs, in terms of energy conservation costs. A subway train passes a planting site. Dryler. The green team is an opportunity for inmates leaving Rikers to continue building the skills they learned, and it also offers them a way to get paid. One of the workers. When it came out, I started working the next week. You know, so I don't want to get back into any trouble or anything like that. I felt that if I kept continuing programming positive, you know, I'll stay out. Our reconviction rates of people who join the green team are extremely low. Logan watches the supervisor help. Carter. And these dream collar jobs are jobs that can't be outsourced. So when you're working to restore a wetland, if you're working to put on a green roof, even putting on solar panels, you're not going to send your house to China to have that done. Green team workers shovel dirt around a young tree. The supervisor. It really is a nice way to bring together the three traditional parts of a person, their physical moving part and their intellectual part and their emotional part. People getting their hands in the dirt and actually knowing the power that they have to tend to something, another living thing. I mean, that's really powerful to folks who have been told all of their lives that they have nothing to contribute. Guided in. This is a lot about team building, too. And these projects benefit the whole community. Another worker. All of these concrete and stuff don't need to be here. Don't have to be the concrete jungle as it is. A lot of people, they're ashamed to touch the dirt and get their hands dirty. but. Dirt is what you're made of, so it's good. 
Lipkiss. Kids really get their power when their learning and their dreaming combine. In a number of neighborhoods where we've given the kids those sledgehammers and they've busted the concrete, many of them were gang kids. After they got done with planting the trees, they voluntarily went and painted out the graffiti. Wires to hold the tree straight are secured. There's nothing more moving to see tough kids have their hearts open because they did the work. And they learn where the real difference is. And they see and feel the real difference they make. Another worker. My grandma used to always say, the dirt is alive. And I'd be like, it's just dirt, grandma. The dirt ain't alive. She goes, it has oxygen and everything in it and minerals and, and vitamins and how you think the plants grow and the food is good and you literally, it goes in one ear, come out the other. But now that I'm older, I understand more how it's very important to help the environment because sooner or later, if people don't really wake up and see what's going on with global warming and all of this, it's gonna be too late. It's gonna be really too late. Ground is hoed at Hardy Roots Farm. Mathai. Even though what you are doing may be very small, may be very insignificant as far as you're concerned, collectively, if so many of us were doing the same thing, we would accomplish a lot. Bill Logan. It really does start at home. Sometimes we can't change things on the grandest scale. But if you start the change yourself, and your friend starts it, and your friend starts it, pretty soon a lot of people are doing something different. The good news is Capra. we don't need to start from scratch. We can learn a lot of valuable lessons from the wisdom of nature. Mathai. Put on the skin the dress, a green dress, like trees. Logan watches another tree go up. Like vegetation. Hands delicately plant seeds and tend to sprouts. And then, when the earth is covered with the green. Like an Olympic park. With the vegetation and with the trees, with the forest. It looks very beautiful. Like the Salgado's green space. And in this age of climate change, can you imagine how happy the planet would be? Wildflowers wave in a light breeze in a meadow, and young trees combine to form a lush green carpet. Jyler. What we give to the soil, what we give back to the soil, how we recycle our waste back into the soil is what's going to sustain us. We have great friends out there. Stemmets. We have biological allies. Underneath, Shiva. in the soil, are soil builders, which are the earthworms. We're selling worms. You can get worms to go. Darwin said at the end of evolution's history, they will be recognized as the most important species because they built the soil. Oh, there's one. A little girl picks up a worm. John Todd. What we've destroyed, we can heal. The no sign leaves the earth. When we have the trees like this. Leila Salgado. Like we see now, we can do more. A few young people carry seedlings down a cracked path and plant them. Mathai. I may feel insignificant, but I certainly don't want to be like the animals watching as the planet goes down the drain. I will be a hummingbird. I will do the best I can. Kids plant trees and walk around them. People in Africa celebrate too, as they lower a seedling into dirt together. Smiling dirt bits of all kinds hold hands. Men cart a young tree down a city sidewalk, and a baby pokes a spade into dirt. Two people place another plant in drier ground. Workers pull trees and pots across a parking lot. 
and kids help another young tree go up. When it finds its place reaching into the sky, a girl dances in the pit where it's being planted. Other kids happily play, and Stamets inhales soil. Oh, that smells so good. <laughs> Riker's inmates. God made dirt, dirt don't hurt. Put it in your mouth and let it work. Dirt. <laughs> Shiva. When nature works on her own, she only creates living soils. But the moment the human being enters, they can either work like nature and rebuild the life of the soil with every action or take it away. The choice is desertification or fertile and living soils that feed us. Millions and billions of dirt bits combine to form healthy Earth. Of the billions of planets in all the galaxies of the known universe, only one has a living, breathing skin called dirt. It lives in the midst of our galaxy, in space. This described version of Dirt, the movie, was produced for Movies for the Blind. Directed by Bill Benenson and Jean Rossow. Co-director, Eleanor Daly. Produced by Bill Benenson, Jean Rossow, Eleanor Daly. Executive producer, Lori Benenson. Based on the book, Dirt, the Ecstatic Skin of the Earth, by William Bryant Logan. Narrated by Jamie Lee Curtis. Narration written by Jean Rossow, Linda Post, and Lori Benenson. Post-production supervisor, Lisa Yesko. Edited by Jonathan P. Shaw, Brian Singbill. Music composed by Jorge Corante. Additional music by Ludovico Ainotti. Sound design, Michael Kowalski. Re-recording mixer, Mark Berger. Music editor, Todd McKenzie. This film was inspired by Dorothy Coleman, who showed us stardust in everything and gave me life on Earth, Bill Benenson. Join us at www.dirtthemovie.org. No dirt was harmed in the filming of this movie. This film is rated D for dirty. And that was Dirt the Movie. They're not kidding about that website. It's still up and has tons of info on the film, the people in it, and the subjects raised. There's also a blog with the latest news, information geared towards schools, how to find a screening of the film in your area, and even ways to host your own screening, and DVDs and other things to buy to help the producers recoup on what is an independent film. Again, that website is dirtthemovie.org. We're heading back into the past again for our next film, based on a story by the famous Western author Zane Grey. It ain't honorable to take a family feud to court that won't spill no blood for you. I want no blood spilled for me. Jed Colby, you have been found guilty. I'll get him. A few hundred at a time ain't my idea of cattle rustling. We're going to strip Hayden of everything he's got before we get through. But we're going to do it my way. That starts the old Kentucky feud boiling again. I'm not going feuding with you, Colby. But I am protecting what belongs to me. There's one of them out here yet. The oldest boy. Will you have a cup of coffee? You're being polite and making fun of me. I ain't used to being polite at. It's going to take a lot better man than you to tie that gal to eggs. Listen, Alan. It isn't our fight. We didn't start it. Why should we hate each other? I don't want to see you or any hating, except in a dead one. 
When I wipe out the Higgins, I'm going to get them all. The last man. Randolph Scott stars in To the Last Man, next time on Movies for the Blind. For more information and links about the movies, about description, and how to subscribe, go to the blog, moviesfortheblind.com, where you can also find out about this podcast's Creative Commons license. And the movies are from the Internet Archive, so please support universal access to human knowledge by visiting and donating at archive.org. Thank you for downloading and for listening. Be back next week. Take care. Thank you.